So I showed it to the doctor, and well, she said it's smashing. In this episode of the Smashing Podcast, we're talking about product design. What does it mean to be a product owner and how can you learn the skills required? We talked to expert Chris Murphy to find out. But first, did you know that Smashing Magazine publishes a brand new article to the website five days a week? That's a lot to keep up with, but we're here to help. It's your weekly update. In a comparison of async await, versus then catch, Brett Cameron outlines the two main ways to handle asynchronous code, ES6's then catch and ES7's async await. The syntaxes give us the same underlying functionality, but they affect readability and scope in different ways. See how one syntax lends itself to maintainable code, while the other puts us on the road to call back hell. Kelvin Omerishone looks at testing view applications with the View Testing Library, a lightweight library that emphasizes testing your front-end application from the user's perspective. Writing tests this way ensures that you're testing what really matters to the users of the application, and this article has everything you need to know if you want to get started. Jay Tompkins encourages us to be more playful. In Playfulness in Code, supercharge your learning by having fun. In the product-focused world of development, it can be easy to forget the joy of making for the sake of making. By dropping the why and the how and focusing instead on the what of weird and wonderful ideas, you can nurture a totally different side to your skill sets. In CopyDocs, make your microcopy full and consistent and maintain it, Valeria Panina looks at CopyDocs, a framework that allows product designers to write and manage their in-product copy in a smart way. In this article, Valeria shares her experience in how the CopyDocs technique turned out to be a game-changer for her workflow. Bravo! And Daniel Don tells us everything we need to know about reactive variables in GraphQL Apollo Client. Reactive variables in Apollo Client give you an easy-to-use, easy-to-update, and consistent querying pattern with a regular remote GraphQL API and enable you to manage locally shared global state among components without extra boilerplate that would usually come with Redux or the Context API. And that is your weekly update. Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com slash articles. He's a designer, writer and speaker based in Belfast, UK. But above all, he's a teacher and like many of us, one who's still on his own learning journey. As a design strategist, he's worked with companies large and small, driving innovation by drawing on over 25 years of experience working with clients such as Adobe, Electronic Arts, and the BBC. He now mentors startup finders, with a particular focus on purpose-driven businesses. This work is underpinned by his own startup, The School of Design, a community for creatives who are designing, building, and selling products. So we know he's an expert in helping others to learn. But did you know he was once taught to play the hurdy-gurdy by Dame Helen Mirren? My smashing friends, please welcome Mr. Chris Murphy. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm smashing. As mentioned in the intro, you first and foremost are an educator, a teacher, and your focus um, and, and your, your energy at the moment has been put into a lot of helping design-focused entrepreneurs to be equipped with the skills that they need to build products. Um, it's a phrase that we hear a lot, but 
What does it actually mean to be design focused? Uh, it's really interesting. Um, I had to do a pitch at the end of the Propel program that I was on from January to June. Um, and if I just rewind a little bit and talk about Propel, it's a startup uh, founder program that I was a mentor on two years ago. And honestly, I was so excited to be a mentor and the, the, pe- the teams were great. And over the summer, last summer, I came back in for a, a what they have an office hour session. And Ian, who was one of my colleagues on the program, is instinctively, why are you here? And I said, because I think I'm actually going to go on Propel next year. And they were like, what? Because they had lined me up to teach on it. Um, and I just said, look, there's so much, there was so much excitement in the program and I just wanted to be part of it. Plus, I feel that, you know, I've been teaching for 20 years and it's time for a change. I also think that education is going through this massive kind of reimagination at the minute because partly because of COVID and just partly because there's a pushback against very high fees in universities. And the other thing is, and I'm going to get back to your question in a second. My daughter is, is uh, I think she's 21 and she's in her third year at Glasgow School of Art. And she said racking up an awful lot of debt to study jewellery. Um, and I think there must be a better way to teach design in a, in a connected age. But coming back to your question, design-focused companies. Um, at the end of my pitch, at the end of Propel, I talked about Apple. And I know Apple's a bit of a tired example, but it was at the time the world's first $2 billion company. And everything they do is, is design-focused. I mean, the, 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 the hardware is, is, is considered, the software is considered, as we've seen recently, the chips are considered. Um, everything is considered in terms of how it goes together. And one of the debates I've been having in my head recently, uh, Drew, is this idea of like, yesterday I spoke to somebody about product design. And I have a friend who's on Propel and he is a product designer, as in he was studying physical product design. Uh, and I said, that's really interesting. And he said, I think you're calling these people the wrong thing. And I said, but another person on the course uh, uh, who is, is a product designer, but she's like what we would call a product designer, someone who's making digital stuff. And so in my head, I think, well, you know, these ideas of these separate disciplines are kind of ludicrous these days because you can't really have a product, a physical product. Let's take this laptop here without some software on it. And you can't have the software and the laptop working together without getting that laptop into our hands. So we then have to go to a shop to buy that. That's an experience and that's being designed as well. So if we take just this computer that we're using to record this conversation. Design is involved every step of the way. It's it's involved in the processes that are used to mill out the aluminium that the, the all the stuff goes into. It's involved in Big Sur, which is the operating system that's running on it. It's involved with uh, going to the Apple store to uh, replace my computer the other day. And it's not like the Apple store anymore, but it's it's been designed as an experience that's designed for COVID. Um, so everything is designed, everything, or I suppose a fairer way to put it is everything can be designed, but not everything necessarily is designed. And I, I think that that's, that's what I'm interested in. You know, we can design can touch lots of things. So to be design focused, uh, would mean to make sure to design every little bit of the process that you, you can, or to, to care about designing more of the bits of the process than a company that that isn't as design focused. Yeah, I love that. I I love that idea of designing more of it. Um, Because if we step back and we look at the entire process, and I think designers are quite good at this. Uh, Designers are quite good at going into a business and, you know, maybe we're asked to solve this problem over here. 
And I don't know about other people, but the way I tend to do that when I'm doing work as a consultant is I, I tend to go in and I've been asked to look at this problem, problem X. And, you know, I'll spend a couple of days looking at that and then I'll come back and say, look, I can totally help you with problem X and we'll get that sorted. But I really think a more pressing issue is this thing over here. Um, and, it, you know, let's take a look at that. And I'll because I'm so terrible at business, I usually say things like I'll do that for free and then I'll help you with this problem over here because I'm really interested in all of the parts of the experience. And a lot of companies just don't really look at, you know, they might be design focused companies, but perhaps they haven't considered how they, let's take an example, package up their products and send them out. You know, you, you for me, when I look at that as a, as a, as an experience, um, you know, cause one of the things we're doing at the school of design is a thing called designer tools, which is, Basically, uh, these sketchbooks, of which I have thousands, thousands sitting just over here, uh, these bands that go around them, which you put your pens in, and a system I use to keep everything organized in my sketchbooks. We're selling all of that stuff. But I'm not just putting those um, sketchbooks into a box. I'm putting them in with lots of little things like badges and stickers and little notes and all of that kind of stuff. Because when that arrives at someone's house, I want them to open that and have an experience. I don't want them just to open it and have three sketchbooks. I want them to be thinking, whoa, that's, you know, that's a nice experience because I think that that will make a deeper connection with that person. Um, I don't want to use the word customer. I think I prefer to use the word friend who paid me some money for something. <laughs> so, I mean, you mentioned Apple there and I think they they are, despite being a, you know, as you say, a slightly tied example, I still think they're an excellent example. Um, I don't think it matters that that uh, people have mentioned them before because they are such a yeah. uh, such a great example. Are, are there any uh, sort of canonical examples in the more of a digital space of of companies that do this particularly well? This design focused approach. Look, I I don't want to use another hackneyed example, but I think Gov.uk are doing an amazing job. I don't think they're a company, um, but I think what what Gov.uk have done. By through the digital cabinet office or whatever that's called and thinking about the processes of government and how people access services. What's interesting to me is that has had an impact on lots of other companies. So if we look at the co-op is a good example of a company company um, and a friend of mine, Charles Burdett, uh, who made workshop tactics. I don't know if you know workshop tactics. They're these really, really great cards uh, workshop tactics. I think it's workshoptactics.com. Um, and these are, I mean, if you want to run workshops, they're brilliant for that. Uh, but Charles used to work for the co-op, um, and, uh, was a consultant. He's working as a consultant there and just now, I think, and they're very good at designing all of the different, uh, aspects of the business, uh, including, I think, visualizing how we might shop in the future. You know, like if you want to go into the, into, uh, the co-op, I have a co-op just down the street, and if I want to go into the co-op today, what I'd quite like to do because of COVID is walk around with my phone and scan things as I put them just straight in my bag and and then just leave the shop. Um, I don't particularly want to talk to anybody because uh, usually I'm listening to a podcast. Um, I mean, I do talk to a lot of people in the co-op, like there's Anna and there's a few people in there who are my friends in the sense that it's my local shop. Um, but apart that, you know, there's always stuff I don't know. And on those days, I just want to get in, get out as quick as possible. And if we add COVID on top of that as a potential life threatening issue, you know, I really want to get in there and get out as quickly as possible with a minimum of fuss and with a minimum of connection with other people as well. Um, and that current experience is, 
is bringing us to a bottleneck, which is a checkpoint or a, not a checkpoint. That sounds very Northern Ireland. Um, a, a checkout. A till, a checkout. Thank you. Um, and that, that's a bottleneck. And even with the things on the floor that say, you know, maintain two meter distance, et cetera, people never, people just, they're so busy that they never really notice those little signs on the ground. And that process could be redesigned in a much, much better way. And I, I think there's scope there and potential to to think about how design impacts everything. Thinking in terms of sort of individual founder businesses, entrepreneurial businesses, uh, do you, does it follow that if an individual is design focused uh, in themselves, that the product that they make will be that way? Is, is a, a product really an extension of the person who designed it? I think it's a really good question, Drew. And I think that the answer to it is it depends. Um, I think it depends on that person and it depends on the scale of the company. If, if you take a look at Hyatt Denim, and I use Hyatt a lot in my in my teaching, it's a really good example of a company that's doing one thing well, and that's their sort of strap line jeans. I think if you look at David's previous, David and Claire, because they're a partnership. If you look at David Hyatt and Claire Hyatt's previous company, which was Howie's, that company had grown so big. There were so many people involved. Once scale starts to creep in, it starts to become very difficult to, to keep an eye on all of the little touch points that matter in the customer journey. And I think it's really telling that when they left Howie's, because Howie's had been bought by Tim, that it's complicated, go read it on the internet, but you know, it's Timberland and Timberland was bought and there's all this uh, story. I think it's really interesting that what they're focused on now is jeans. That's it. You know, they're telling an amazingly good story around jeans and they're also packaging everything really, really well. And this, the jeans are like a vehicle for stories, really. Um, you know, and also the jeans are and this is something I think, Drew, is going to become more important as we come out the other end of COVID, which I hope we come out the other end of. Um, everyone who's making those jeans is being paid a proper wage. And one of the problems I have at the minute when I look at the world is not everybody is being paid a proper wage. And I find that a little bit concerning as, you know, as someone, look, I'm, I'm 51. Uh, my son is 25, uh, 24, 25, something like that. It's terrible. I should know all this stuff. Um, he's a wedding photographer. Uh, he has been a wedding photographer for um, like a year and a bit. His business is completely decimated because no one's really getting married at the minute because it's it's just difficult. And he's not he has no salary because he didn't have enough uh, self-employed books to get the support. Uh, he's fallen through the cracks. And there's a lot of other people who've fallen through the cracks. I would argue that's a design problem. You know, that we need to look at that as a design problem. But if I also look at that wider issue of COVID and the government and all of these things without getting too political, I read an article in The Guardian yesterday about Matt Hancock's neighbour. Uh, and anyone who's listening who's not from the UK, Matt Hancock is the health secretary. And his neighbour, who was running a business, was like, you know, texting him and asking for advice about, you know, how do I supply products for this COVID thing? And there's an awful lot of rumblings around the chumocracy is what the papers call it. You know, uh, friends of friends of government ministers who seem to be getting jobs because they know the right people. And I get this sense that we're going to come to the other end of this and see this, you know, individuals see that and they think, well, where's this money going? And, you know, are people being paid properly? And what's the price of this one pound T-shirt from Shop X? I don't want to mention any brands, um, but, you know, everything has to be paid for. 
and everything that's made has to be, uh, people have to be paid to make it. And I think people are increasingly interested in what are people, you know, are people being paid fairly? One thing you mentioned in there was was sort of design touch points. Yeah. Um, which uh, by a design touch point, I mean, anything where the, the customer, if we can use that term, comes into contact with your product or, or business. Is that what a touch point is? Yeah, I've, um, I've, I hired a placement student um, this year, which is really unusual because I've been teaching at Belfast School of Art for, for 20 years. And I don't think a member of staff has ever hired a student who's going on a placement year. But I kind of knew I was leaving, um, even though nobody else did. So I hired a placement student to help me. And the, I think the last diagram she drew for me was touch points because I... I constantly have conversations with people who say, what is that? They've never heard that term before. And in a sense, that really is what the School of Design is about. It's teaching you all the things that nobody taught you in art school, basically. Um, so yes, it's about building products, but it's also about just covering gaps in knowledge. But touch points are everything there. They're from how you answer the phone, which increasingly is not really something that we do. Uh, it's maybe the tone of voice of your email or the tone of voice of your uh, your social media messaging or how you write a blog post. I mean, there's so many different ways we come into contact with people and all of those ways have to be designed. So things like microcopy and all the sort of communications, the tone of voice, the 100%. Things that, things like one of the things that Jasmine, my placement student, has been working on for me is uh, like an illustration system for the School of Design so that when she comes to the end of her placement with me, which at the minute is looking like about December sometime, um, but when I embark on the School of Design properly from the 1st of January, I have everything uh, so that we have a visual aesthetic that is considered. And if you think back to some of the articles I've written for Smashing Magazine on UX design, I've always designed those illustrations for those articles with the Smashing Red and, you know, and I've always thought, well, these are part of the series for Smashing Magazine or you know, I've done some stuff for Smashing and Adobe. And I think, well, we should try and make these illustrations on brand for want of a better word, because that's where they're going to end up. Right. And what was interesting to me, if we think back to those articles, Adobe published them on the Adobe blog. And I could instantly tell that they were smashing because they had that color. And you could see looking down the page, there was some were by me and some were by other people, but you could see, oh, that was from Smashing Magazine. I was stoked for like, I love, I'm so biased because I think Smashing Magazine is doing an amazing job. So, you know. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, you often um, hear people talk about entrepreneurial business saying that like, oh, it all starts with an idea. Um, and I'm not really sure that's true personally. I think to me, products, the products that sort of really make it and are successful often start with a, a problem. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. Or a constraint or a limitation. Um, it always starts with a struggle and it probably carries on that way as well. Do, do you agree with that? I do. I do. Um, I think that most products... I mean, if we think of products, they probably fall into two categories. One is problem solving. Like I have an issue and, uh, oh, look, I have this issue and there doesn't appear to be anyone solving it in a particularly delightful way. Um, perhaps someone is solving that problem, but maybe not in a delightful way. And so we can bring delight to the party and we can bring delight to, to the table. And I think we should be thinking about that full stop for everything. So one category is the I have a problem. But I think another category is like, 
is just delight. I mean, you know, we buy a lot of things for no other reason than they bring joy into our lives. Um, and I think everybody has probably got something that they bought that, you know, they could get a cheaper version of this thing, but they bought this thing because it brings product. I have an example behind me, which is this shoe. Um, and I have these shoes in two sizes. Um, unfortunately for people who are listening to this podcast, you can't see the shoe. It's a camper. It's a camper shoe. All my shoes are camper shoes. I, I fell in love with camper a few years ago. It's a really good story. Portugal, I think is the company. And I only buy the Pilota shoes, which have got the balls on the, on the feet and on the, on the soles. And they have a story behind that as well. Uh, inspired by footballs, I think. And this is a, uh, camper kvadrat i don't know how you pronounce kvadrat it's like k-v-a-d-r-a-a-t or something and it's a textile company and i bought this in a size 10 because that's my usual size and i also have it in a size 11 because it's such a stiff fabric it's really tight so i had to buy another one and so these are kind of like an ornament sitting on this bookcase behind me now i could buy these camper shoes uh and i think they probably cost me about 90 pounds or something now i don't need to buy those shoes for £90. I could probably go and get a decent pair of shoes for £20. Um, but they just bring a bit of joy into my life. I mean, when I put the shoes on, they're bright blue. And people usually say, oh, like, well, where'd you get your shoes? And so they're a conversation starter. And, you know, they're not just a shoe. Um, and so that that's another half. And I think if we think of those products as being in those two categories, problem solving and delight bringing, Ideally, we want a mixture of the two. We want problem solving and delight bringing. Um, but I'd say probably 70% are problem solving and about 30% are are no other reason than joy. You mentioned there the, the story behind a product. How important is it to have a sort of origin story behind your, your products? I think it's really important. I think that people are hungering for stories now. I think if we think back to the, the overlong section where I was criticizing the government, which you might want to edit, um, I, you know, I think stories are important. I have a whole deck. It's on notice as well, uh, which is called product storytelling. And it looks at the story behind Hyatt Denim, but it also looks at the story behind Field Notes, which are somewhere behind me on that bookcase. Um, and, you know, Field Notes are a really good example of this. If you go to the Field Notes website and you click on any of the, the printed products, they will tell you crazy details like thanks to these three people who invented the staple. Um, and this particular printing press is called a such and such and such and such. And it's printed with these Pantone Hoya inks. And the paper is this, that and the next thing. And, you know, if you're spending $9.95 on three tiny notebooks, story's kind of important because you could probably just pop down to your local stationers and get a much cheaper set of notebooks. But you're not really buying notebooks. You're buying a story there. Um, and I think that um, Field Notes are a really good example of that because they've taken something which is which could easily be a commodity. Um, and it could easily be something that you buy based upon the price. And they've turned that into something that is a story. And that you're buying not just because um, not just because it serves a purpose, it's useful to put in your pocket and take notes, but it's also just it's something that brings a smile to your face. And uh, uh, on one end of the spectrum, they have the standard brown field notes, which are kind of the commodity end. 
And even those aren't really a commodity. And then on the other end, they have their additions where they're, you know, they're trying different print finishes and they maybe are inserting maps. And there's a huge amount of field notes influencing this, uh, this the, the designer tool sketchbooks that we're working on for the School of Design. Because um, Andy McMillan, uh, who folks may know for Build Conference and XOXO, he, he is the person who printed all of these sketchbooks. And uh, when he moved to Portland, I bought them off him or I bought some off him because we used to share a building and he was one floor down and my studio was above him. And I bought a box off him and I started to use the sketchbooks. And I always used to put my, I do them in a particular way, put a postcard on the cover so I can tell that's the current sketchbook. And then I have a table of contents on the inside and so on and so forth. And he, when he was selling them, he had a, a shop called Draft Tools or Draft Supply. It was Draft Supply Co. You can see it on the Wayback Machine. And he said, you know, sketchbooks shouldn't be celebrated. Uh, they should just be cheap. You know, it's the ideas that should be celebrated. And I agree with him, but I kind of wrote something recently where I said, but why can't the sketchbooks be celebrated as well? Um, and when he got them printed, I wish I could show you, Drew, there's literally boxes of these everywhere. Um, they're printed by a company called Oddi, O-D-D-I. And I remember Andy saying to me that he'd had them printed by Audi. And I was like, what, why did you get them printed by Audi? I mean, they print books and, you know, they're probably an expensive place to get um, notebooks made. Um, but for me, I looked at the paper and the print and the binding and it's just, you know, there's a story there. And Field Notes have done a really good job of, of, of telling that story. And they're very successful as a consequence. So is it about sort of creating uh, an emotional connection with the customer on, on whatever level. 100%. And this is one of the things, one of the many things um, that I am trying to cover in the School of Design. I'm just writing that down frantically, emotion. Um, because a lot of the purchases that we make today are driven by emotion, not necessarily by rational decisions. So when the M1 computer came out two weeks ago, you know, my son, the photographer, coming back to my son, the photographer, he's working on a, a very old computer with a screen hanging off. And I happen to have a, a spare oldish MacBook Pro. And, you know, I said to him, OK, you could take this um, and it would improve your life considerably. But at the same time, I was like, but maybe you should get that M1 because I'd been completely seduced by, uh, you know, the, the visuals and the storytelling and the chip and the memory and all of that kind of stuff. And I, I after about 10 minutes of talking to him about this, I was like, maybe you should be getting this computer that I have and I should be getting that M1, you know. And then after I rationally thought about it, the next day I thought, I don't need an M1 computer stuff. You know, there's nothing wrong with this one. I bought it last year. But that's a really good example of emotion getting the better of you. You think to yourself, oh, and you get carried away. And I'm sure we've all been in a shop where we've bought something and we didn't really need it, but we bought it on a credit card and... Then maybe when the credit card bill comes in, we think, why did I buy that X? You know, and that's a good example of emotion and not rational, you know, rational thinking. I think a lot of this isn't taught in in design school. And this I'm, I'm really struggling with what the school of design is, but it's definitely this. Right. It's like psychology. It's like touch points. It's like customer journeys. It's emotion versus it's emotional responses versus rational responses. It's mental models. It's it's all of the things that nobody really mentioned to you when you were when you were at art school. Um, but you really need to know in order to work as a designer now. I think uh, having having that sort of um, story behind a, a product is something that Apple does particularly well. I think they do it so 
consistently and have been doing it for so long now that perhaps people don't even notice that it's happening, but everybody listens to it. I mean, they can, they can say, or, you know, as, as you were mentioning earlier, this, this new product has been milled from a single piece of aluminium and they're telling, they're telling that story. And on, on a practical level, we don't care how it's been manufactured. They can use whatever manufacturing process works best for the end product, but they, they sell it to you on that, you know, this is the care that's gone into it. This is the process. We did this research. We found that this was the best. And then you see the the unboxings on YouTube and the reviews, and they're all, ah, oh, did you know this was milled from a single piece of aluminium? Those those stories really sink in and give give people uh, a, a sort of a, an attachment um, to the product more than if it was just a utilitarian tool. 100%. I have, uh, you know, because I'm leaving Belfast School of Art at the moment, I'm bringing home boxes and boxes of stuff. And one of my boxes, I don't think it's here. I think it might still be in the university is called The Experience. And it's a cardboard box full of stuff that's to do with this whole topic. And there's a lot of stuff from Howie's, um, including a box of clipper tea that came with a bag I bought. And I was like, why are you putting that tea in? And they said, we always put a box of clipper tea in with uh, everything you buy. And I was like, right, okay. Fascinating for me. Um, But one of the other things, which I don't have anymore as a lecture I used to do about 10 or 15 years ago, where I had an Apple computer box in one hand and a Dell computer box in the other hand. And the Dell box was like a brown cardboard box, silkscreen printed, pretty utilitarian and not very exciting. And the Macintosh box was just the opposite. And, you know, my story was with the students was always like, if you've just bought a computer that was 1500 pounds, you know, this unboxing experience over here is telling you every step of the way you made the right choice. The Dell box, on the other hand, wasn't really doing anything. It was just getting it from A to B without getting scratched. And I think that that's a real missed opportunity. You know, packaging is something that's often overlooked. And actually, if you go and look at Japanese, there's some great books on Japanese packaging that we could all learn from in in a Western culture. Uh, There's a really good book called How to Wrap Five Eggs. And there's another book called How to Wrap Five More Eggs. And it's they're both about Japanese, um, the Japanese obsession with wrapping. And, you know, they they take an object and they wrap that in tissue, which is considered. And they then put that in a bag, which is considered. They then maybe wrap that up and tape it together, which is considered. And then they put it in something else. I mean, every step of the way is like a layering process that makes you just feel amazing. And all you're unwrapping is an egg. It's incredible. Does um does communicating all these sorts of of details, you know, and and sort of thinking about all these little touch points, obviously it works for big businesses like you know mega corps like Apple who've got lots of money to spend at it. Can it work for very small uh, companies too? And you mentioned Hyatt Denim, are they they're just a a small company, aren't they? I, I love the way you said mega corp because <laughs> it feels like it's out of a. Um, a film from uh, the future um, and they probably colonize planets uh, as well um, you know um, yes I think it works almost better for smaller businesses and I would argue that if you're a smaller business you have a real advantage um, you you if let's say I'm a megacorp uh, and I'm sending out my stuff it's very difficult for me as the CEO of megacorp to handwrite a note for every single customer um, because it's just like the business is just too big and then if I 
write a note and then try and sign it, right? Well, maybe we could scale it a bit, right? But then what happens is you write a note and then you you actually print the signature. It's no longer actually signed. And then people like me who are cynical go like this and they hold it up to the light and they go, oh, that's not signed, right? Um, and that that's actually now having the opposite effect in that it's looking like it's personal, but it's definitely not personal. So, you know, most, most businesses don't think about any of this kind of stuff, but I can't be alone in feeling that way. But on the other hand, if I'm a small business uh, and I I open my package, uh, who's a good example of this? Counterprint Books. Um, don't go to the website. It's counter-print.co.uk, I think. I just don't go to that website. You're going to spend a fortune on books. But um, Richard Baird, who publishes um, Logo Archive, which is a fantastic little zine, um, every issue of Logo Archive that I have had from Counterprint Books has a little message from, uh, I think her name is Celine. And it always says, enjoy your zine, Christopher. Um, and, you know, she says, thank you. And I'm just like, well, I'm so stoked. And I took a photo of that recently, which I'll tweet when this comes out. Um, I've got all the thank you notes. And I was teaching a group of um, crafts people about two or three months ago. And one of the other crafts people on the call, because I was teaching and they were all muted. I could see she that she was wetting herself laughing. And I was like, why are you... <laughs> Have I done something? And I'm thinking, is there something behind me? And I, you know, I said to her, you know, Angela, why are you, why are you laughing? And she said, I, I've also got all these notes as well. Uh, and I said, oh my goodness, I thought maybe I was the only person who kept these. But, you know, I said to her, like, it would feel like sacrilege if someone's written you this little note to just crumple it up and throw it in the bin. Um, because it feels like that connection has been made with you across time and space. And you can do that as a small business you have advantages as a small business that big businesses don't. It's almost like giving a, a sort of sense of provenance, isn't it? Like if you went to a, a, a local restaurant that, that has its own kitchen garden and grows its veg and sources its meat from, a, from local farms, it's, it's giving that sort of that feel of, of connection. I wish I could show you. I'm actually opening up. Um, I'm opening up notice.mrmurphy and I'm going to go and find paint a product picture um, and noticed is so nice. Um, So slide nine from paint a product picture, which I'll give to you and you can maybe put in the show notes um, is a screenshot of the Apple dictionary of the word provenance, the place of origin or earliest known history of something, the beginning of something's existence, something's origin. And in my notes beside the slides, in the slide view, the tall slide view, which is fantastic, um, in an era of cheaply manufactured goods, customers are eager to know the provenance of your product. And that, that's a good example of the differentiation you can have as a small business versus a large business. You know, the bigger a business gets, the more people there are in the business, the more there are people in middle layers of management who come along and say, that thing that we've had made by this, you know, this seamstress in Cardigan Bay, I think uh, if we come back to Hyatt Denim, they call those people uh, grandmasters. To, to you and me there, I don't think you'd call them tailors because tailor to me in, in, evokes a Savile Row kind of image, like a suit that's tailored to you. Um, w- what they probably are, are seamstresses or, you know, people with a sewing machine and Hyatt Denim call them grandmasters. Um But the bigger the company gets, the more this middle layer of management starts to say things like, look, we're paying all these people in Wales, you know, like £10 an hour to, to, you know, basically to stitch up these jeans. What if we got those made in Bangladesh or, you know, somewhere cheaper? 
where the cost is is less expensive and the cost of living is less expensive and there perhaps are less kind of um factory condition checks etc um you know we could save a ton of money and we could make more profit that's the slippery slope and when that happens the provenance suddenly disappears uh, and people care about that kind of thing now and i think coming out the other end of covid people will i think people will remember you know, there were certain companies when COVID started that were, you know, I remember in the UK that were, you know, if you were a, an essential business, you know, selling food, you could stay open. But if you weren't an essential business, you had to close. And there were certain companies like Sports Direct who were saying we are an essential business. And, it, you know, there was a backlash in the public saying I- in what way? Um, it was kind of like because people need to do sports while this is all happening. Um, you know, and I think that those kinds of things, people have long memories. As a as a sort of product owner, how important is it to rigidly stick to that vision that you had when you start things up? I mean, I, I think of companies like um, Basecamp, who was formerly 37 Signals, and, and founder Jason Fried there has always marched to the beat of his own drum in terms of what the product should and shouldn't be. Um, and, th- and that's quite often in, in the face of customers who are saying, we will pay, you know, we will pay extra if we can have these features. And the answer has always been, no, that's not what we're about. Is is that a, a key to success or is that just one path that someone might choose? It's a bit of both, I think. Um, and all my answers are always, it depends. Um, I think here's a good example, which is closer to home. Over the years, I've asked you to make changes to Noticed where I've said, you know, I'm an educator. I don't particularly want to make up fake conferences so I can share my slides. Um, but your product is really designed for speakers at conferences. Um, and, you know, I've, I've almost come to a form of, I've asked you to make changes to your product many times as a customer, and you've decided not to do that. And that's entirely your uh, right to say that because it's your product. Um, and, you know, I think that there's a place for having a vision and not immediately bowing to the needs of, of, of one customer. Um, you know, it's like yesterday, I was thinking about the School of Design and where we're going, and I wasn't sure if the word designers was an important part of it for the customers or was creatives a better word. And I was having this debate with my with my other brain in my head. And I was like, actually, I think it's designers. But the reason I used the word creatives was because one of the people who's taking a course with me at the minute is not a designer. He's a developer. And he said, I think if you use the word creatives, I would feel part of it. But if you use the word designers, I wouldn't feel part of it. And so I was almost going to change the whole pitch for the business because of the sake of one person, which when I thought about it rationally a couple of days there, I thought that's insane, right? It's called the school of design. It's all about design. If you're, you know, you can be, let's take, you know, you can be a non-designer and you can come into the school of design. That's totally cool. But, you know, I'm not going to change the language for that one person. And I think that comes back to what I was saying about noticed earlier. You have a vision, your product is working really well for that vision and you're sticking to it. Um, And I think that that's a good thing. The flip side of that, if we think about 37 Signals, Jason Fried, et cetera, they are very strong-minded. Uh, you know, they know what they want to do and they also know what they don't want to do. One of the problems of getting stuck in that way of thinking is that you can miss innovations. You know, you can be so focused on this is what the thing is that customers really need something and you just don't do it. Um, I think because you feel so dogmatic. Um, when we launched Get Invited, our ticketing platform, 
which is struggling because ticketing in the middle of COVID is a problem. Um, you know, one thing, one of our vision at the beginning was like, let's not be Eventbrite. Let's not put so much stuff on the page. Let's just keep it simple. But one of the things that was really, and, and we, uh, when I briefed uh, t- um, t- uh, Kyle and David, my two co-founders who were students when we built the business, it's incredible. Um, I said to them, look, we above all, we must never lose sight of the fact that these pages for the events need to look beautiful. So we have to stop people, f- you know, co- normal customers from messing up the pages by doing design. And you know what? Actually, we we were wrong. People, you know, overwhelmingly people came to me and said, is there any way I can change the color scheme here? Because it just doesn't fit my brand. And at the beginning, I was kind of really, nope, you know, forget it. And people were saying, you know, could we put our logo on it? Uh, And I was saying, absolutely not, you know, because it's going to ruin the design. And just once we had hundreds of people coming and saying that they wanted to change the color or they wanted to add their logo or could they add more than 140 words to a description, you know, we we had to sort of listen to the overwhelming evidence that perhaps we were being a bit too narrow minded and we needed to flex a bit. So it's that balance between sticking to your vision and not getting stuck in a cul-de-sac. And, and how do you weigh into that, uh, the fact there might be competitive products or, or services in the marketplace that might do things that, that you don't do, have, have features that you don't have? There's obviously a temptation there to start matching all the competitors feature for feature. I think matching competitors feature for feature is a slippery slope. Because as soon as you do one, then you suddenly start feeling you have to do another. And before you know it, you've lost track of your original vision. Um, and it's if we come back to the noticed example, the thing I was describing to you was probably a different product. Um, it's probably the, the guts of notice, but badged as a tool for, for speakers who are not at events. They just make a lot of decks. They make a lot of slide decks. Um, and that's a different product. Um, and so there's opportunity there in the sense that you could use the same code base to make something different with a different brand and a different audience and a different target, et cetera. Um, but perhaps if you did this thing and this thing and this thing, then suddenly your things lost its, its identity. And when with get, coming back to get invited, the example, we were very careful to, you know, if a hundred people ask for X, and we sit back and look at it rationally and think, okay, maybe we should buckle here and we should give them this thing because we, you know, it's it's affecting people's willingness to take up the product. Um, so that was something. Um, but it's the slippery slope. I think you want to be you. You don't want to be, a, a, you know, a smorgasbord of your competitors, you know. Uh, I suppose there's a, um, a balance there between building sort of a very – narrow band focused solutions for a specific need versus building something that's could fit a number of uses you know i guess to to use a metaphor a bit like um a garlic crusher and a chef's knife you know the the garlic crusher gets the job done with zero effort but it only does that one thing and the chef's knife can also mince garlic but it can do a thousand other things at once but it requires a bit of skill to learn and to to use so in terms of products is is there a, a way to, to balance that up? Do you do you go down a, a, a very focused, easy path and then duplicate it if if you want to grow or, um, you know? I, I think for me, at the beginning of the product journey, it's really important to have focus. It's really important to think, okay, well, who are my customers? What, kind, what are they going to spend? 
And how am I going to to look after them to the best of my abilities? Um, I think there's you could you could sell something that appeals to everybody and as such appeals to nobody. Um, and I, for me, at the beginning of the journey, it's really important to focus down and think the, these are the core people. Um, you know, it feels bizarre to me, but we're in nearly in December. I've been working on the School of Design in a kind of beta form for 11 months. I still don't really know what it is. Um, and when I started the journey in January, my audience was definitely students. It was like, this is cheaper to learn UX and UI using what was then called Design Track. Um, and, you know, it's like an alternative to university education and it's students. The more I've been working on it, the more I think it's not students, it's actually professionals who are in the middle of their career. And there's just a lot of things about design they need to know. Um, but I haven't said, OK, I'm now going to include those people. And, you know, what I've actually said is this is the wrong audience and this is the right audience. And these people I'm not going to waste any time over. And I think that, you know, at the beginning of your journey, if you try to be a knife, um, this is going to be so cool with this metaphor here because people are not going to understand us if they come right into this bit of the of the podcast. At the beginning of your journey, if you try to be a knife, you know, you're being all things to all people. Um, and I think it's better to be a garlic crusher at the start. And then over time, add more things as you scale slowly, you know. And so for me, what's really important, you know, what's what are we trying to do and can we get a group of people to be really happy with what we're doing and also pay us some money in the process because otherwise you know this is just a hobby and once we've got those people happy can we start to expand a little bit but not just in a massive way or then we'll lose focus and we'll become a knife but at some point in the future it might be worth considering becoming a knife because a garlic press uh, crusher at that point is perhaps too limiting you mentioned there um, finding finding the right audience. Uh, it's you know obviously important to to find a market and work out what that market should be and and tailor the product to to fit that market. Is that something that the the program at the School of Design addresses? Is that something that it equips people with? One hundred percent. I think that one of the things that we're looking at is definitely you know audience. You know who's the audience for this thing. Um, one of the modules that I was, uh, I, I mean, I don't even know if we have modules actually, if I'm honest, but certainly one of the things that I will be teaching is, uh, a thing I call venture testing. Um, and I talked about this in a, a, a workshop I was doing on Wednesday for, um, startups in the Northwest up in Derry, London, Derry, Derry. That's just touch covering all the bases here. Derry for one audience and London Derry for a different audience. Um, that's a big city in the Northwest. Um, and I was talking about this process called venture testing. And for me, it's like build a smoke test page, use Facebook and Instagram to drive traffic to that. A smoke test page. And if you, if there is interest and there are signups, great, keep working on it. If there is no interest and there are no signups, then either you're, you're driving the traffic, the wrong traffic to the page, in which case modify and change. But if, if no one is signing up for anything, then it's time to close and move on to the next thing. And so I talked about a, a workshop that I'd launched with a friend of mine on the Propel program, and we had one sign up. And I kicked off the talk on Wednesday with this was a success. And most people are looking at you thinking, but you only had one sign up. And I'm then I'm showing the structure of the course that I was going to have to write and saying one person is not worth writing all of this content and making all of these screencasts. So this has saved me a massive amount of time. So it's really important not to get deluded 
with your own, you know, I really believe this product's going to be amazing. And you don't really check with anybody else. And you're like, this is going to be, I mean, that's how the segue kind of happened, you know, and the segue kind of didn't really turn into what the segue guy thought it was going to be. It's like now, a you know, tours around Berlin type product, you know, it's not re- the future of transportation, you know, on a, on a practical level, what sort of format does the school of design take? Do you know yet? Is that, is that still in, in, up in the air? Yeah, I, I literally have absolutely no idea. Um, what 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 I what I'm doing? Well, two two or three people. I have to say a massive thank. First of all, the team and Propel have been amazing. Um, secondly, Ben. There's a particular guy, Ben Lindsay, on Propel who's been really great. He's, he's young. He's like twenty, early twenties, and he has a startup. And he's just he's very, really inspires me because he's young and he's got a lot of commitment and passion. Another guy, Mihal, as well. He's 19 and he's he's with a friend has made over 40 grand. He's a first year student at, Bel- at uh, Elster University. I'm amazed. And he's making a, a, a product that connects to satellites for farmers. It's incredible. Um, and another friend, Al, Al Power, who's been helping me with my website, which has been the slowest website build in known to man it's been you know or woman or any other gender it's been very very slow um and that's because i haven't really been sure what i'm doing um i think the biggest clue i got was signing up for uh Anne laura leconf's nest labs nest labs is amazing and about two weeks ago i got an email from Anne laura who's a friend of mine saying you know welcome to the course starts on monday and i was like my immediate reaction was, have I signed up for a course that I can't remember? And it wasn't, it was more a case of if you're a member of Nest Labs, you get access to these courses. And that for me was a real turning point because at that point, Drew, I realized that up until now I was selling workshops and with the workshop, you got access to a community. And I then realized that what Anne Laura was doing was selling a community that gave you access to workshops. That's that's the same thing, but different. And I think that that's the biggest clue I have in terms of where I'm going. It's a, a community. It's not a community you can join right now because I'm still working on it. And there is a very small community of around 30, 40 people who are on a Slack who are all helping each other. And they're like super, super early beta people. And so it's a community. And then my feeling is that if you're in the community, you just get access to learning um, one, one, uh, the best way to explain it, if I pull up my notion, I have a library in notion, which is free and it's library.theschoolofdesign.com. And it's essentially like everything I've learned and everything I've taught, but there is a book called hello, a practical guide to building an email newsletter that works. Um, and it's part of a series of books that I envisage that I'll be working on over the next kind of year or so. And there's three ways to read the book. And I think this explains the school of design. Way number one is read it from first page to the last page in that order, right? Just pick it up and read it. Way number two is just dip into it. Okay. Just read bits. And way number three is don't read it. And I realize that that sounds a little bit um, like what, uh, you know, um, so I've written here, you know, when I say don't read it, I don't mean ignore it. I, 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 a lot of people just don't have time to read at the minute, they're too busy rushing around, you know, so I'm going to be taking the books and the learning materials and saying, join me on Thursday evening at seven and we will run through the contents of that book. And then if you want to go and read certain aspects and go into more depth, you just go and get that book and it's free and it's in the library and you have access to it. So what I see the School of Design being is a community of designers who know they need to know more 
um, that they haven't learned everything there is to know. And I think that I'm going to probably get into trouble by saying this, but I think that membership price is probably quite low. I think it's something like £60 a year or something. All my friends have told me that's far too low. Um, But I think that the community is, you know, it should be open to as many people as possible. And to me, that's more important than making money. I mean, I have to somehow or, another, somehow or another, Drew, I have to earn enough money to pay my bills in order to just help as many people as I can. That's, that is essentially my vision. You know, essentially my vision is that the School of Design is like a master's course, but it doesn't cost what a master's course would cost. Because if you went to do a master's course in London or something, it would be like £10,000. And I think that in the School of Design, there probably are some courses that are more premium uh, that you can do. But the majority of stuff is is just being part of a community. I, I don't know about you, but I think it, communities are going to be big as we move forward. Um, and I think that places like Smashing's community and and the School of Design community and, and Laura's Nest Labs, you know, people are hungry for that, especially in this world where we're not really connected to people. So that for me is really exciting. It is very exciting. You, you don't refer to um, to students uh, as students, do you, as, as the School of Design? You have another term that you use. Yeah, I, I, I was calling them founders um, because that was informed by the... Um, the Propel program. Founders was the word I was using a while back. I'm not 100% sure if it's still the right word because I'm not necessarily sure that everybody in the School of Design is a founder. I think that some of them want to build their own businesses, but some of them just want to do a better job of building businesses for other people. Um, you know, th- th- I, I'm i torn at the minute, Drew. Uh, you know, last week I was like, y- you know, it's for people who want to build their own products. And yeah, it's definitely for those people, um, but they might be a subset. And that's because I was having a conversation with somebody recently who works at booking.com. And, you know, I'm helping this particular person uh, with some mentoring and he doesn't want to leave booking.com. He's very happy, but he knows that there are certain things that he wants to learn to enhance his current understanding. And he's been out of art school for probably about eight or nine years um, and he just is at that point where he feels like there's a few more things he'd like to learn, um, but maybe doesn't have 10 grand to go and do a master's. I guess it comes back, like, like you were saying about um, Hyatt calling their um, their workers grandmasters. It, it, it highlights the importance of the choice of language uh, in our products. 100%. And I probably would still lean towards founders than students, because to me, students have so many connotations um and students to me it's the wrong word i know that um and also i mean i've written two books on language the craft of words with nicholas my partner at the time so we've got the craft of words part one which is on macrocopy and the craft of words part two which is on microcopy and we should put a link in in the show notes but language is so important how you choose to describe things affects how people perceive things and language is another part of the school of design one of the things that i'm doing at the minute is is Looking at the library, which has some rather ambiguous um, section titles, uh, like life first, work second. I'm like, God, that's awful. Why don't I just call it like process or something? Um, But there are sections in the library like marketing, uh, um, branding, um, pricing is another one. There, There are sections in the library that will still be there. 
productivity is another one that I'm adding in terms of like, how can you be mindful, but be productive as well? And mental health or mindfulness is another one, because to me, um, living a life intentionally and not just autopiloting through your life is important. And living a life with purpose is important as well. But maybe I've just got old and I've started to realize these things, you know. Is, uh, is the program um, focused on founders who are making digital products? Or would a founder who's, would they feel just as at home if they were making shoes? Yeah, I think for me, it's products. Uh, I would remove digital because I was talking to Kara, my wife, about this yesterday. She's a silversmith. Um and for me, that distinction is, isn't really there. So if we think back to when we were talking about Apple earlier in the conversation, you know, there's the service design aspect, there's the product design, physical product design aspect, there's the software aspect, all of these things we need to know. And I don't think that one designer can do all of those things. But for me, a big uh, one of the things we start used to start the masters off with was this idea of a T-shaped person. Tim Rav from IDEO talks about this. You're really good at a thing, but you're good at, you understand the other things as well. Um, and so I think that the kinds of people who are joining the School of Design are T-shaped people. Um, you know, they understand, they are, they're really good at something, but they understand how to work with other people who are good at their thing too. And we have a, a section of the library, which I'm working on, I'm going to be launching next year, which is called Beacons, which are examples of companies that we can learn from. And in my notice decks, it's noticed uh, N-O-T-I dot S-T slash Mr. Murphy. Um, there are a number of the beacons are in there. Um, Hyatt Denim is one. Field Notes is another. Us Two Games is, I've been talking to Mills at Us Two Games, uh, who's super, super interesting. Mills, amazing. Um, and, you know, there's a uh, Block Knives is another one, Benjamin uh, Edmonds. Um, and what's interesting to me is quite a lot of them are not digital products. They're they're physical products. And we can learn by just looking at all the, the landscape of stuff that, you know, consumers give you money in return for you to give them, as we said earlier, uh, solutions to their problems and joy. And, you know, how do we how do we as designers build those kinds of things? Uh, you know, I think we're good at doing solutions to your problems. Sometimes we're missing joy, um, you know, and sometimes we m maybe we could put a bit more work into just joy and no solutions to problems. But like we can learn as designers of products digitally from physical products as well. And so for me, if you look back to the Bauhaus uh, at the turn of, well, not really at the turn of, but the beginnings of the 20th century, you know, you have a lot of people, Walter Gropius, uh, Johannes Itten, Walter Kandinsky, um, who are, you know, they, they don't have, bound, they're not like, oh, I, you know, Mies van der Rohe is doing chairs, but he's also designing buildings and he's also uh, designing textiles. And, you know, at no point did anyone say, oh, no, mate, you can't do that because uh, you're a chair guy. You know, and if you look at Charles and Ray Eames, uh, who, which is more than Charles Eames, it's Ray Eames as well. And Ray always gets way overlooked, which I think is wrong. The Eames partnership were making films. They were designing chairs. They were, you know, these people to me are like mega, mega beacons, you know. And so we can learn from Dieter Rams. We can learn from Charles and Ray Eames. We can learn from the Bauhaus. We can learn from the Ulm School. And if if I if I suppose the only way I can describe the school of design is is like a master's education minus the master's price tag, it's basically all the stuff I used to teach on my master's at Belfast School of Art, but for a fraction of the price. So you're launching uh, at the beginning of January. 
first of January. Yeah. What does that launch look like? Um, on the first of December, I'm just going to start my blog um, properly uh, at theschoolofdesign.com. First of January, and I and I've got a mailing list which I'm going to start properly sending emails out and things like that. It's been busy for me because I've been teaching for the last semester, um, but from the first of January, I probably inviting more people into the Slack and then finding our way forwards. Lots more customer conversations. What's really important to me, Drew, is not opening the doors to all and sundry with something I haven't thought through. And I would have thought by now that I would have got it finished because uh, I've spent the last year thinking about this. But it's been through so many iterations um, that, you know, I'm still learning. And what I want to, to do is what I would say is you can still you can access the library right now. It's at library.theschoolofdesign.com. And there's a lot of stuff in there. Um, and that for me is not going anywhere anytime soon, but I, I see some of those sections being turned into, into mini lectures or workshops, or it's just like, do you feel like you need a shot of creative injection energy in your arm? Show up on Thursday evening at six o'clock and we'll do a session on something this week, marketing or product storytelling or mental models, or, you know, I'm sure most designers could you know, they don't need to turn up to all of them to get their money's worth. They just need to show up to a handful. Um, the other thing I think we'll probably be doing on the 1st of January is sharing the first season of speakers that we have this idea of seasons, um, like a Netflix type thing. So Mills from us too has said he'll do a talk for us. Um, we've a few other interesting people who we've lined up and that first season is called, oh my word, what is it called? I can't remember. It's something about the fact that the world has changed. It's to do with like what what is tomorrow with COVID and 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 basically we just get people to come and they it, they had a thing on Propel called Founder Firesides, which was amazing. I loved it because you would show up and someone would be beaming in from somewhere in the world. And Chris, who was the person who ran Propel, would just ask them a bunch of questions, and then we as People on the course could ask some questions too. And I don't know if anyone on in Smashing community knows Farnham Street. Farnham Street do something diff, similar. Um, you know, they have monthly uh, AMAs and they get really interesting people. And they ask the community if there's anything you want to ask, uh, you know, this person, what would you ask? And I just see there as being an opportunity to build a community of people who want to learn together. It all sounds uh, really exciting. And I, I look forward to following it as it as it all happens. And seeing what uh, seeing what comes of it, it sounds like a, a great opportunity um, for those who uh, wish to sort of uh, continue their design education or maybe start their design education. Well, start as well. I start as well. I mean, there's an awful lot of people that I've been teaching on Propel over the last couple of years who who maybe when they started did not really know much about design. And by the time I'd finished with them, you're running a few sessions, they were like, you know, they were picking up pens, they were sketching interfaces, they were, you know, they were a bit more design aware. Um, and I think we all need to be design aware as we move forward. Um, we've talked about a lot of it just now, which is great. Awesome. I've been learning all about product design. What have you been learning about lately, Chris? What I've been learning about is um, Facebook advertising. Um, and oh, Facebook gets a really bad rap, but um, more, I have this idea in the venture uh, testing module, which is what I call like traffic beating, 
Um, and it's terrible. I use this, uh, I'm going to pull it up here because I can read it off here. Um, so you've built your smoke test page. Okay. So you've got your, you've got your product described and what I've written here in beater in beating traffic. If you're unfamiliar with the world of grouse shooting, the idea of beating might be new to you. Um, here's a description from the national organization of beaters. A beater flushes birds, pheasants or grouse from cover, driving them in the direction of the guns. Um, in this peculiarly British metaphor, the birds are your customers and the guns are your smoke test page. You know, I'm really interested in how do we get people to see the page that we've built to describe the product? How do we find the right people and how do we get them pushed over to here? And f- Facebook is one way, but Reddit ads and Google ads and You know, I think that designers moving forward need to have some of the skills that startup founders have, uh, which is, you know, startup founders are trying to achieve a lot on usually not very much money. Um, Certainly the model of startup thinking we have on this side of the Atlantic, you know, in the San San Francisco, Silicon Valley kind of world, it's like, don't worry about customers. Here's a hundred billion dollars and good luck, you know, and that's a completely crazy way of running a startup if you're in the UK. Um, you know, if you're in the, the UK or somewhere that's not Silicon Valley, it's like, you know, you build things, you try them. If people are interested, you do more of it. If they're not, you move on to the next thing. And so that's what I've been learning about. It's like, how do I get more people to see the things that I'm testing? If you, dear listener, would like to hear more from Chris, you can follow him on Twitter, where he's at Fella. That's F-E-H-L-E-R. And you can find the School of Design online at theschoolofdesign.com. Thanks for joining us today, Chris. Did you have any parting words? Uh, Yeah, my parting words would be just start. You know, if you have an idea, just start, right? Don't build it in your head and make it really, really complicated. Until this year, I used to do that. I used to think, oh, like if you look at my tiny books, which was my previous thing, tinybooks.com, it, it was so big in my head. There was going to be a book about this, a book about something else, a book about this. And then there was going to be a smaller book about this and an even smaller book called a comet about something else. And, you know, I had this huge solar system in my head. And the one thing I did this year was uh, embrace a, 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 everything is a prototype mentality. Like everything I am doing is a prototype. So if something works, great. What did I learn from it? If something doesn't work, great. I still learned something from it. So my advice, my parting words would be, if you have an amazing idea, just start. Because I've met so many people in the last 30 something years who have an amazing idea. And when I say, can I see the homepage or do you have anything done? Uh, It's still in their sketchbook. And I'd rather see it like out there on, you know, on the web or somewhere, you know. So start. One word simple. This is Smashing. And that was our podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And if you liked it, please share it with your friends. Find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com, on Twitter at Smashing Mag, Smashing Magazine on Facebook, or in the supermarket by the cat food.